Welcome to Newborn News, a podcast where we discuss educational topics for medical professionals who care for newborns. I'm your host, Dr. Nita Goley, a pediatrician in the UT Southwestern Newborn Nursery. Welcome back to the podcast. In today's episode, we'll be discussing congenital adrenal hyperplasia, or CAH. We are recording remotely today due to the ongoing COVID pandemic. We are joined by Dr. Ming Yang, Assistant Professor of Pediatric Endocrinology at UT Southwestern. Hi, Dr. Ying. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So congenital adrenal hyperplasia caused by 21-hydroxylase deficiency is the leading cause of ambiguous genitalia in a genetically female infant and can often include life-threatening, salt-wasting, and adrenal crisis as well. If you remember back to med school, it's caused by a defect in the steroidogenesis pathway. So to start off with, Dr. Yang, please can you refresh our memories on the adrenals, their function, and the defects that can cause the different types of CAH? Yeah, um, absolutely. So as a quick refresher, um, the adrenal glands are suprarenal glands that are composed of two different parts. Um, You have the adrenal cortex and the adrenal medulla. Um, And these glands are surrounded by an adipose capsule that forms a protective layer. Um, So the the cortex is the outer part of the gland, and that can actually be um, broken down into three different sections. Um, So first you have the zona glomerulosa, which makes aldosterone. Uh, The second part is the zona fasciculata, that makes cortisol. Um, And then the last part is the zona reticularis, which makes the sex steroids. Um, So uh, we may or may not have learned the mnemonic in med school of the deeper you go, the sweeter it gets. So that's kind of a quick way of trying to remember the different parts of the cortex. Um, So the adrenal medulla is the inner part of the gland, and that produces catecholamines, um, epinephrine and norepinephrine, um, as well as dopamine. Um, So there are a whole bunch of different enzymatic defects that can cause CAH. Uh, Just uh, a quick reminder about that. Cholesterol serves as um, the substrate for all your steroid hormones. Um, And steroidogenesis actually requires this coordinated regulation with cellular uptake and transport and then uh, the use of the cholesterol followed by a series of unique biosynthetic steps. So if you have any type of defect in any of the enzymes that are necessary in these steps, um, that can lead to the different types of CAH. Um, So knowing the adrenal steroid pathways really kind of helps us figure out the different forms of CAH. Um, They are all passed on in an autosomal recessive pattern, um, and 95% of CAH cases are actually due to 21-hydroxylase deficiency. Um, So there are a whole bunch of other forms, but they're much more rare, um, and those include uh, just kind of going top to bottom on the the pathway. Um, You have lipoid hyperplasia, which is secondary to a defect in in STAR, which is steroidal transport acute regulatory protein. Um, Then you have 3-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase deficiency, uh, then the 21-hydroxylase deficiency, 
efficiency um, and the, also 11 beta hydroxylase deficiency. Kind of go in the opposite direction on your steroid pathway. Um, you can also have defects in uh, 17 alpha hydroxylase or 1720 lyase deficiency. Um, and then there's another one that's kind of a combination of a couple of them, um, which is P450 oxidoreductase deficiency. Um, so it's really important to note that there can also be partial enzyme deficiencies and uh, more mild deficiencies as well. And so this can definitely cause um, a pretty wide spectrum of disease. Along that spectrum, how often are infants with CAH also affected by the adrenal insufficiency? Yeah, so this, this question is a little bit tough to give you kind of a finite answer to because of that spectrum. Um, so in, in the classic forms of all the different um, enzyme deficiencies that cause CAH, um, there should theoretically be an inability to form cortisol. However, um, the, the ability to form aldosterone and therefore the chance that infants with the age will actually have salt-wasting crises really kind of depends on the enzyme uh, defect. Um, so, for example, uh, kiddos with 11-beta-hydroxylase deficiency and 17-alpha-hydroxylase-1720-lyase deficiency do not actually have any salt-wasting. Um, and then within 21-hydroxylase deficiency, they're actually three different categories of CAH. Um, so first you have your kind of most severe form, which is the salt wasting or what we like to call classic. The intermediate form is um, simple virilizing and then the most uh, benign or not benign, but the least severe form is called a non-classic or late onset. Um, so there's actually a much higher prevalence of non-classic CAH than the classic salt wasting form. Uh, and simple virilizers and non-classic kids actually do not have any adrenal insufficiency. If those are caused by the um, same genetic defect, what is the what causes the difference in the phenotype between those three? So it's uh, there's definitely different like introns and things that um, can cause. Uh, the different ones. And actually, uh, if you have kind of two different uh, issues, the milder form um, the, will basically be, be the more dominant form. Um, so it really kind of depends on um, what is missing um, on, on the actual 21-hydroxylase part. Okay, I see. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and then one other important thing for us to note is that though we usually think about CAH causing females to become virilized, it can also affect males, um, and they might not have the obvious findings of virilization on physical exam. So screening for CAH is included on the routine newborn metabolic screen, which is really vital for early identification of affected babies, especially those who might have more subtle physical exam findings. Um, can you talk a little bit about how we screen for CAH? Yeah. Um, so also, you know, I want to be clear here in this context that we're, again, kind of honing in on that 21-hydroxylase deficiency because that makes up, you know, again, 95% of cases of CAH. Um, and actually, some of the other forms of CAH, boys can be actually under-virilized. Um, but you are absolutely correct in saying for those with 21-hydroxylase deficiency, um, boys will have no obvious virilization on exam. They're just going to look like you know, little boys. Uh, for girls, um, it's important to look for any signs of virilization and uh, feel for the absence of any testicles. 
Um, so the newborn screen actually only screens for 21-hydroxylase deficiency. It doesn't screen for any of the other enzyme defects. So what happens here in Texas is that there's actually a two-tier testing strategy. Um, we also actually do two screens in the state, um, which most states don't do. So we end up picking up very early um, a lot of the non-classic uh, patients. So what the state does that is that it takes the blood spot on the filter paper from the newborn screen and it screens for 17-hydroxy progesterone or what we, what we like to refer uh, to as 17-OHP. Uh, and this is the precursor that's actually elevated in 21-hydroxylase deficiency. So on that first screen, what they do is they'll um, take the top 5% of newborns, which they're saying are you know, less than seven days old, and then they'll also take the top 3% of the follow-ups who are greater than or equal to seven days old, and they retest that 17 OHP level. Um, then out of those that are retested, they'll take the top 20% um, for the newborns and the top 15% for the follow-ups um, with a certain cutoff for that filter paper 17 OHP level. Um, additionally, if the child is a low birth weight um, child, then there's kind of another cutoff that they use for that filter paper 17 OHP. Um, and then so these will then trigger a second tier test, which will run the sample through a liquid, liquid chromatography tandem mass spec assay. Um, so those that are elevated on that second tier test is what comes back as a positive on the screen. Um, so when, you know, the general pediatricians in the community and the nursery or the neonatologists in the NICU are getting notified of that abnormal screen for CAH, that's the process that triggers the, um, the abnormal screen. Okay. Um, and this, if the screen comes back positive, um, it's going to ask the practitioner to order a seventeen, uh, a serum 17-hydroxy progesterone and electrolytes. Um, and so, you know, just something to quickly note um, for, for you guys who are ordering it, um, make sure that we're actually ordering the 17-hydroxy progesterone and not accidentally ordering the 17-hydroxy pregnenolone, uh, which is actually a precursor that's elevated above uh, that uh, in 3-beta HSD deficiency. Um, so the other thing I would do is just kind of make sure that we're doing a you know really thorough uh, physical exam, specifically looking at the genitalia, um, and then asking the parents um, to see if there's been any signs of you know vomiting or dehydration, um, and taking a good look at you know vital signs and whether the baby's been gaining weight appropriately. Okay, um, with the newborn screen that you mentioned, how common or how often are we finding CAH? Yeah, so uh, based on kind of neonatal screening and national case registries, um, the worldwide incidence that's um, kind of stated in most studies is somewhere between 1 in 14,000 to 1 in 18,000 um, births. Um, of course, the condition is definitely um, more prevalent in small um, genetically isolated groups uh, with smaller gene pools. Um, here in Texas, with data from our newborn screening program from 2016 to 2018, um, our incidence rates uh, for classical CAH, um, which what they, they categorized salt wasters and simple virilizers as classical, um, was about one in 12,500. Um, and within the U.S. population, actually for non-classic CAH, there's um, a pretty high um, frequency. It's um, about one in 200, actually. Mm. Wow. 
So that's much more common than I yeah. realized. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Good to have that on our radar. Um, right. For these babies, how would we expect them to present? I know you mentioned this briefly a, a bit earlier, but if you can um, let us know some more details. Yeah, sure. So, um, again, that really kind of depends on the severity of the deficiency. Um, Non-classic patients will behave completely normally, um, and they'll really present later on in life uh, with signs of premature adrenarchy. Um, So you'll see, you know, uh, usually kind of increased linear growth, um, possibly some body odor and um, or pubic or axillary hair. Um, And some are completely asymptomatic and um, Kids will present as adolescents or even even adults um, when they come in for um, kind of irregular menses um, or infertility evaluations. Uh, simple virilizers also, for the most part, behave like normal newborns, um, but they're more likely to have some sign of uh, virilization on exam. Um, so for girls, there, there could be some clitoromegaly or posterior posterior labial fusion. Um, but most of these kids really have pretty normal cortisol production, um, and so they can also present later on in life um, like the non-classic patients. Um, so salt wasters, um, or the classic, you know, the true classic form of the disease, um, can actually also behave completely normally until about day 5 to 14 days of life. Um, of course, unless they're girls and have ambiguous genitalia, which will tip you off beforehand. But for a boy, they could be totally fine. Um, so adrenal crises are usually going to happen kind of actually that second week of life. Um, and they can present with lethargy and vomiting and dehydration um, and shock. Um, and then, you know, they can have hyponatremia and hyperkalemia on their labs. So uh, thank- thankfully, because we do do that newborn screening, um, we usually don't see this anymore because the screens come back um, beforehand. Okay. Why is it that they present in the second week with the adrenal crisis? You know, that's, that's a really good question. I, I don't actually have a great answer to that, and it might just be that um, it just takes that amount of time for, uh, you know, their, um, uh, you know, cortisol and aldosterone levels to kind of lower back down um, into kind of a more dangerous category. So I, I don't actually know right off the top of my head why that is, that it takes them a little bit longer. Sure, but good for us to know um, when we're following these babies up. And then, so what if we have a baby, one of the virilized um, forms? So we have a baby in the nursery with ambiguous genitalia. Um, what are our next steps in evaluation and management while the baby is still in the hospital? Yeah, so, uh, you know, definitely I would do a good thorough exam and then look through the chart to see if uh, there's any any relevant history in the pregnancy and um, or any type of family history. You know, um, again, it's kind of an autosomal recessive uh, pattern of um, you know pass- passing on. Um, and then you know, give us a call and we will help you evaluate depending on what you're describing and what we see on our exam. Um, a good place to kind of start thinking about um, ambiguous genitalia in general is just to try to think of this um, as either an over-virilized girl or an under-virilized male. Um, and remember, there's certainly a lot of other causes of, of ambiguous genitalia that are not secondary to any adrenal causes or CAH. 
Um, and like we discussed, even those with um, the true salt-based form of CH usually don't, um, quote-unquote, crash until later on. Um, so technically, it's, it's not an um, emergency like in the middle of the night. But that being said, there's always a lot of angst from families. Um, so there's uh, certainly urgency to start that workup. Um, so at minimum, um, we're probably going to be asking for a chromosome analysis on a fish for SRY because that tends to come back a lot faster than the chromosome um, and some type of imaging such as like a pelvic or an abdominal ultrasound. Um, if we're truly worried for CAH or any adrenal issues, um, we're going to want to make sure that that cortisol production is okay. Um, so we're going to ask for a, a high-dose ACTH stimulation test. Um, with the specifics of those precursors, um, really guided by your suspicion based on the, the enzyme defects that we're actually thinking about. Um, and if you are worried for any type of salt wasting, um, then we're going to ask for um, lights, aldosterone, and renin levels uh, during, during basically at the beginning of the test. Um, and there are a whole bunch of other tests that can be run on ambiguous genitalia. Um, it's just going to kind of depend, again, on what we see. Um, so not, not all tests are going to be helpful, and it really depends on what, what uh, the exam looks like. How does the ACTH stim test work? Would you mind reminding me? Yeah, so um, essentially what that is, is um, for a high-dose test, there's actually two flavors of ACT stim test. Um, so one, there's a low-dose, and then uh, the second one is a, is a high-dose. Um, you would typically do a low-dose low test if you're concerned about central adrenal insufficiency. Um, but if you're uh, worried about primary um, or an, an adrenal problem itself, you'll do the high-dose um, so specifically for the high dose, what you're doing is you're going to get a baseline ACTH and cortisol. Um, and again, you know, whatever, if we're looking for 21 hydroxylase, we'll also get a 17-hydroxy um, progesterone level at baseline. Um, and then we will give, uh, for kiddos that are less than two, we'll give 125 micrograms. Um, if you're older than two, um, we'll give like 250. Uh, there's another uh, smaller dose for kind of some like, you know, extreme preemies. Um, so we'll give um, that um, as uh, cortrosin, IV push, and then get a 60-minute um, cortisol and 17-hydroxy progesterone um, level. Um, and again, there might be some other labs that we'll throw in there, but that's kind of the, the basic um, ACTH stimulation test. So for a child with 21 hydroxylase deficiency, how would you expect those numbers to look before and after? Yeah, so um, if you have classic salt wasting, um, essentially uh, your cortisol level will not peak over, uh, with a delta of 10 um, and and a, a peak of greater than 18, you know, so you'll have cortisol deficiency. Um, and then uh, the 17 hydroxy progesterone levels um, really typically will stimulate up to the uh, 10,000 uh, nanogram per deciliter mark or above. Um, so that's kind of what we're looking at. And there's a nomogram for um, what we kind of look at um, to help us decide um, is this kind of a, a regular kid, a, you know, um, a non-classic child uh, versus a, a simple virilizer or a, a salt waster. And there is some, um, there can be definitely some overlap in that. Um, but, you know, typically kind of 10,000 mark is um, more of uh, a salt, you know, a salt waster. Although I've had some um, simple virilizers um, 
certainly stimulate up to that amount. For simple beerilizers, the cortisol, um, you know, it may not quite get to above 18. Um, usually it's kind of maybe kind of that 14, 14-ish mark. So uh, they usually make pretty decent amounts of cortisol, but it's, uh, it may or may not be completely normal. Okay. And then you mentioned earlier when you were talking about all the parental angst, completely understandable. How do you usually counsel these parents when you're talking to them, like before we have an answer? Yeah, and that's always really, really hard, right? Um, because uh, families have to have to figure this out, and then it's just a lot of these tests do take a bunch of time um, for the results to ha- uh, to to um, result. Um, so, uh, I, I, what I would say is, you know, tell tell the family that you're going to get a multidisciplinary team of specialists together to help determine the diagnosis and the plan going forward. And I'd really try to tell them to kind of keep an open mind as far as like the sex of the baby, um, especially if there's any ambiguity involved. I, I would try to avoid um, using you know specific pronouns like he or she, um, and try to remain as neutral as possible and just refer to the baby as baby until there's more information. Um, you know, avoiding sex assignment uh, until more workup has been done. I think is really kind of the best way to go for that because it's really hard to kind of backtrack. Um, although it's already going to be hard because they're probably, you know, if they've already found out the sex of the baby ahead of time, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, it's really difficult. Um, as far as advice for PCPs who are kind of counseling parents who have newborns that have abnormal newborn screens for CAH, um, I do think it's important for the pediatricians to know a few things, right? The newborn screen usually is going to report um, that 17 OHP level as either kind of mildly elevated, moderately elevated, elevated or severely elevated. Um, And while every newborn screen should definitely be taken seriously, um, I wanted to highlight, remember, that the screen is still just a screen. And the point of the screen is to try to pick up as many children as possible so we're not missing any cases. Um, However, when we're trying to not miss any cases, sometimes we um, can cause a bunch of parental angst um, if there are any type of false positives or just more milder forms of the disease. Um, So clearly, if you have a severely elevated 17-OHP level, um, that needs to be kind of dealt with immediately and promptly discussed and coordinated with endocrinology. Um, And we should absolutely, you know, tell the parents um, the possible severity of adrenal crises. Um, But that being said, if you have just kind of a mildly elevated screen, uh, that could be completely normal um, and probably more likely to be a non-classic child. Um, It's probably also more likely to be true if if only the second newborn screen is abnormal. Um, And I really hate for families to be kind of unnecessarily freaked out. Um, The levels are also a little bit higher in sick kiddos or preemie kiddos. Um, So there's actually other, again, other nomograms based on, uh, you know, how premature they are and um, what their birth weight is um, for for the NICU providers specifically. Um, So, you know, they'll come back with a really high level and really just based on their Um, their gestational age, it can be completely fine. Um, You know, clearly there's always exceptions to every single case, uh, but it is, I think, important to discuss uh, uh, following up with an endocrinologist. But, um, you know, it's also important to also know that the non-classic kids may never need any type of treatment at all. 
What should we expect long-term treatment and management for the bulk of these kids, both medically and cosmetically? Yeah, so um, long-term treatment really kind of depends on the severity of the enzyme deficiency. Um, So like I just kind of talked about, um, a lot of non-classic patients um, may not need any treatment at all. Um, Sometimes we will treat if, uh, you know, it's causing premature adrenarche or uh, advancement in bone age. Um, So for the classic salt wasters um, with 21-hydroxylase deficiency, um, the neonates are treated with um, not only salt supplementation, but at the very beginning, we're giving them pretty high doses of hydrocortisone to kind of start bringing those levels down as soon as possible. Um, And then we're also giving them fludrocortisone. Um, Over time, we're going to actually take the salt supplementation off, um, and then the kids are basically maintained um, on hydrocortisone um, to cover that cortisol deficiency and fludrocortisone for the aldosterone deficiency. Um, So for the first 18 months of life, um, our guidelines kind of recommend seeing them every three months, um, and then kind of thereafter, we um, push it out a little bit further to every four months. And what we're medically doing is that we're just monitoring their um, their labs, um, blood pressure and growth, um, and pubertal progression, and then we adjust their medications as they grow. Um, their hydrocortisone uh, usually is based on kind of their body surface area, and then also what their labs are looking like. Um, the other thing that we are teaching our families. Um, uh, to do is basically in times of stress, we teach them to give stress dose on the on the glucocorticoids, uh, so just higher doses of those. Um, and then depending on their control, the kids may still struggle with premature adrenarche or rapid linear growth and advancement in bone age, um, which can compromise their final adult height. Uh, And some of these kids actually um, will get triggered into central puberty um, early, so we may need to address uh, that part of things with um, a different set of, uh, you know, medications. Uh, For kids, uh, for for boys who are older with CAH, uh, we do monitor for something called um, TARTS, um, which stands for testicular adrenal rest tumors. Uh, And what these are are actually just benign um, uh, ACTH-dependent tumors um, that if left untreated can actually destroy their testicular tissue and then lead to um, issues with fertility. Um, But these tumors actually respond very nicely to higher doses of medication. Um, So really, it's just kind of getting that ACTH level down with some additional medicine um, should help um, decrease or, you know, make those tumors go away, assuming that they're not already gigantic. Um, So eventually, when they've really finish their linear growth, um, then what we can do is uh, change their hydrocortisone over to a longer-acting glucocorticoid, um, like prednisone or dexamethasone. Uh, Usually, we're trying not to use those in our younger kids because they're growing, and those those other, you know, steroids are just much more growth-suppressing. There are some newer experimental drugs that are being developed um, as well. as kind of improved glucocorticoid delivery methods, such as, you know, putting um, hydrocortisone through a pump. Uh, So that could be really exciting uh, for the future. Uh, You know, from a, you know, uh, urologic or surgical perspective, what we do is 
will refer the virilized girls over to our uro- urology colleagues um, to talk about all the surgical options um, for any type of urogenital reconstruction that they may need. Um, so they'll talk to them about kind of the timing of surgery um, and if it needs to be any type of stage procedure, um, you know, different stages, uh, and the pros, of, pros and cons of kind of early versus delayed surgery um, and or even observation until the child is older. Um, the type of surgery and that timing is, again, kind of best discussed with the surgeon, um, and it's also dependent on probably how bad the virilization is um, if those girls are kind of getting a whole bunch of recurrent urinary tract infections and um, also family preference for the gender assignment and um, any type of fertility implications for the future. Uh, Adolescent girls um, who have had a history of being virilized um, and have had surgeries, um, you know, they may need continued care with gynecology and or urology, um, especially if there's any concerns for Um, stenosis or, you know, delayed or painful menstrual cycles. And then if they're kind of thinking about um, starting to have, you know, have sexually sexual activity and then that part, uh, they may need some things like dilation uh, in in the vaginal area. Um, And then eventually, if they do want to talk about pregnancy, then that's always a, a good, you know, place to talk with the gynecologist um, about that. Um, So long-term, I think it's also kind of important that these um, patients have access to behavioral and mental health providers um, to address any concerns related to CAH. Um, We don't really know conclusively what the effects of, um, you know, high high androgen levels are on the body and the brain um, and um, gender-related behavior, especially uh, if that happens kind of in utero as well. Um, so, not, nevertheless, studies have actually showed that most females that are raised um, adolescents, or female raised adolescents and adults um, with 46XXCAH um, end up identifying as female. Uh, so, they, there was a study of um, 250 individuals with um, 46XXCAH who were raised female, and um, only about 5.2% had any serious gender identity problems. Um, so at this point in time, we really kind of lack a bunch of systemic comparative studies of early versus late genital surgery or um, electing to have no surgery at all um, in regards to just, you know, outcomes of sexual functioning and quality of life. That was really thorough. I appreciate all of that guidance. Um, I think you've already addressed this, but are there any other comorbidities which you didn't already mention which the general pediatrician should be aware of while caring Um, for these children later on? Yeah, so I just talked kind of briefly about, um, you know, girls that had urogenital um, anatomy issues. Uh, because they, they do tend to uh, be more prone to having urinary tract infections. So I would, uh, you know, be on the lookout for that. Uh, and kids actually with classic CH are more likely to get into trouble and require hospitalization with 
any type of vomiting illnesses um, such as viral gastro or urinary tract in- infections, um, especially under the age of two, um, if they're unable to tolerate their medications by, by mouth. Um, and if they are needing, you know, glucocorticoid therapy at all, um, just remember that, uh, you know, you should recommend for them to stress dose their steroids during any time of illness or with procedures. Um, again, we teach them how to do that, and that's part of their training. But a lot of families um, either kind of forget or <laughs> are not particularly particularly good about doing that. Um, so it's always a good reminder uh, if it comes from the general pediatrician. Um, and then uh, some, some of these kids can really kind of struggle with obesity as well um, because a lot of them do need higher doses of glucocorticoids. So we're kind of trying to balance everything out um, by kind of trying to control their, their levels with uh, uh, with with you know hydrocortisone, but then that can also make things a little bit harder from from a weight standpoint. Um, and then uh, you know since again we do the two screens here in Texas, um, we're seeing uh, a lot of non classic CAH patients um, right from the beginning. Who again we we tend to just kind of follow these kids over time, and then if they do have any additional issues or their levels get to a point that we worry that they're going to have um, advancement in bone age, then, uh, you know, we, we may start something. But um, a lot of these times, a lot of the times the families are just like, you guys aren't doing anything. So then often they will just kind of stop following up with us. Um, so what I would be on the lookout in the, these kids is, uh, as a general pediatrician would be to actually look for, again, signs of premature adrenarche and rapid growth. Um, if that were to happen, you know, just say, Hey, Maybe it's a good time to kind of touch back base with the endocrinologist. Okay. The importance of the the medical home, again, and uh, working with our specialist. Right. So uh, to end the episode today, do you have any last-minute advice for our listeners while they're taking care of newborns? Well, I I would just say, you know, just give us a call if you're concerned for any endocrine-specific things or have any questions about um, abnormal newborn screens or or any labs. Um, A lot of the times uh, we are, you know, we're very friendly over the phone. So we can help you out and help you guys decide if a kid needs to be seen in our clinic or not. Um, And we can also help avoid a bunch of unnecessary referrals um, and reserve those clinic appointments for kids that really need to be seen in clinic. Um, You know, a lot of the times we uh, uh, just kind of get a whole bunch of referrals and and there's so many of them that it often takes quite a bit of time to get in. Um, So, you know, if if it's something that we think that you guys can deal with um, and we can help walk you through it, then, you know, absolutely, I think, give us a call. Um, I don't think you'll regret it. <laughs> um, it'll be beneficial for, for both of us. Uh, and I just wanted to say, you know, thanks for all that you guys do as primary care physicians and um, taking care of our patients. And um, we really, you know, wouldn't be able to do what we do as subspecialists without having you guys as um, that primary home and that base. Yeah. And we appreciate your expertise and your guidance. And thank you so much for joining us today and for your time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was, you know, really fun. Thanks for listening to Newborn News. We hope you join us next time. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. If you have questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, please email me at newbornnews at utsouthwestern.edu. 
As a reminder, this content is educational and is not meant to be used as medical advice. Views or opinions expressed in this podcast are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the university.